Well, good evening and a really warm welcome to another of our Theology Condensed Sessions. This is week number five of six Sunday evenings that we're spending together. Seven o'clock for 30 minutes of teaching, and then that will be followed by a brief, albeit optional, uh, Zoom conversation. You can see the link for that Zoom meeting in the chat now, if you're looking on our online church platform or via YouTube. Much of what we're sharing week by week through Theology Condensed is rooted in a book by a chap called John Mark Comer, who's a pastor and a theologian based in the United States. His book is called God Has a Name, and if you haven't read a copy, I'd thoroughly encourage you to get hold of a copy for yourself. Well, as we journey through these sessions week by week, um, as we say every week, you might want to scribble down a few thoughts or comments or things that stand out to you as we share in this teaching so that you can bring them up in our Zoom discussion. We're going to read together Exodus chapter 34. I'm going to read from verse 6 um, onwards. Exodus chapter 34. It says this. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God is slow to anger, abounding in love and in faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents, the third and the fourth generation. So today we get to the penultimate phrase in our anchor text, Yahweh is abounding in love and faithfulness. In Hebrew, love and faithfulness are hesed and emet. This evening we're going to look at each word in turn before fusing them back together into a single phrase. So to start with, this phrase hesed. This is a, a sweeping, a panoramic word, which actually we have no equivalent for in English. And that's why different Bible translations use all sorts of different words to translate this phrase. It can be translated as steadfast love or unfailing love or even covenant loyalty. There's a Hebrew scholar called Daniel Bloch, and he says this, the Hebrew hesed cannot be translated with one English word. This is a covenant term wrapping itself up in all the positive attributes of God. Notice that he says hesed is a covenant term. We'll come back to that thought very shortly. Well, as is clear from what Daniel Block said, hesed is one of the most important aspects of God's character. In fact, it's the only character trait which is repeated in our text. We read here that God is abounding in love and in faithfulness. And then in the next line, which Kay will come to next Sunday evening, it says, maintaining love, hesed, to thousands. Well, remember what I said a few weeks back about how ancient Hebrew writers, if they really wanted to drive a point home, they would repeat it. They would repeat it. They would repeat it. And God says that, uh, it uses this, this word love twice, back to back, meaning that this is one of the most truest things that there is to know about Yahweh. He's abounding. He's spilling over way past capacity in hesed. But two, we discover that he is overflowing in emet or in faithfulness. Literally, the word means truth, but it can also be translated as trustworthy. It has the idea of reliability. You can count on this Yahweh God. He simply won't let you down. But what about us? 
when life gets hard, when life is no longer fun or easy or novel, when it becomes difficult, even uncomfortable, sometimes boring, we do or are at least tempted to leave things or give up. We leave jobs, we leave the place where we live, we leave churches, we leave friendships, we leave marriages. But we discover from our text this evening that God is not like that. God is a faithful God. When you put hesed and emmet together, it becomes an explosive term, abounding in hesed and emmet, abounding in love and in faithfulness. When you join these two words together, they become a hendaius, which is a literary device where two nouns are smashed together to help define one another. So in our case here, it means God is, uh, God's love is his faithfulness. God's faithfulness is his love. And this starts to make sense, doesn't it, of why our English translations of this phrase are so inadequate. When most of us think of love, we end up thinking of feelings of tolerance. So when applied to God, we could end up thinking, well, Yahweh is just saying here, he really likes us. He just feels warm towards us. He has nice emotions when he thinks about us. Now, of course, all that is true, but God is saying so much more about himself here. Hesed and Emmet are about God's loyalty. It's about how God never, ever abandons his people, but he's faithful to the bitter end, no matter what the cost. This pairing of love and of faithfulness is used all over the Bible in pairs. In the Psalms alone, the word hesed is used 126 times. For example, Psalm 89 verses 1 to 2 says this, I will sing of the Lord Yahweh's great hesed love forever. With my mouth, I will make your faithfulness known through all generations. I will declare that your love stands firm forever and that you've established your faithfulness in heaven itself. And then as you continue in that psalm, Yahweh's voice breaks into prophecy about the coming Messiah in verse 28 and 33. It says, but I will not take my love, my hesed from him, nor will I ever betray my faithfulness. This one sample comes from but hundreds. Yahweh's love and faithfulness are major themes of the Bible and one of the main reasons that worship is offered in the Psalms. Now, of course, all of this ought to start raising a few questions for us. Well, if this is true, if God really is faithful, then how did I end up in an unhappy marriage? If all this is true, then why am I in my 40s and still single? If all this is true, then why is it I'm wrestling with a chronic illness? Why did I have a miscarriage? How did I get fired from my dream job? If God really is faithful, why am I behind on my mortgage payments? If God is faithful, why is the world full of systemic racism? And at times it can be quite hard, can't it, to reconcile God's love and faithfulness with the reality of life. But I want for a moment for us to try and work this out together. We can't fully wrap our heads around Heset and around Emmet without understanding covenants. Now, I mentioned those right at the very beginning. And to do all of this, we need to have just a basic grasp of the overall story of the Bible. Covenant really isn't a word that most of us use anymore, but in the ancient Near East, a covenant was essentially a hybrid between a promise on the one hand and a legal contract on the other. It was relational. 
two or more people would make a promise, and then they would sign a contract with clearly defined blessings or rewards and curses, or we might say consequences, for keeping or for breaking that promise. I guess the closest thing we have in our modern world to a covenant is a marriage. Think of the call and the response that happens in a marriage ceremony. Do you promise? Well, yes, I do. And then it gets repeated the other way. Well, do you promise? Yes, I do. I promise back. Marriage is a a covenant promise to stay and to be faithful to your spouse. But a covenant is also a binding contract, a promise and a contract. When you get married, you literally sign your life away and there are consequences if you don't keep your promise. Well, if you know the big picture story of the Bible, it has an awful lot to do with Yahweh making covenants. And one of the key moments, the defining moments, is in Genesis chapter 12. In context, Yahweh's good world is seemingly being defaced by evil, and God calls Abram, as he was known then, to to get the story back on track. What's the first thing that God does with Abram? Well, he makes a covenant, he makes a promise in Genesis chapter 12. Verses 2 to 3 say this, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Notice all the I will, the I will language. It's the language of relational assurance. God promises Abraham that his family will become a great nation. He promises, too, that he's going to bless this nation, and in fact, that all peoples on the earth would be blessed through this nation that God has blessed. God is saying that through Abraham's family, he's going to put right everything that's gone awry in the world. What a staggering promise that we have here. But what you'll notice is that God does not promise Abraham that he's going to have an easy, carefree life with money in the bank and a penthouse suite overlooking Bournemouth Beach. God promises to bless Abraham, but Abraham's life was anything but a walk in the park. Now, if you continue to read on in the story of Genesis, you discover that this promise later becomes a fully-fledged covenant a few chapters later. When Abraham finds himself up against the wall, he's in a tough place. And it looks like Yahweh has been unfaithful to his promise to Abraham and to Sarah. They're still childless. So what do they do? Well, they decide they're going to try and help God out. Abraham and Sarah, in this moment of their journey with God, do what many of us end up doing. We look at the promise of God over our lives, and then we compare that promise with our circumstances, and somehow they just don't line up. In Genesis 15, there's a very weird story that many of us probably skip over when we read it because it doesn't make any sense. Yahweh tells Abraham to gather some animals and to make a sacrifice. So Abraham does as he's told. He cuts in half a bull, a goat, a ram, and a few birds, and he spreads them out on the ground. In the ancient Near East, this was called the cutting, uh, a cutting covenant. You would cut the animals in half and then you would lay them out in parallel lines. And then the two parties would walk through the makeshift pathway of these dead animals as a symbolic way of saying, well, if I don't keep my end of the promise, then may this happen to me. There'll be blood and there'll be death. But that's when the story takes a really bizarre turn in Genesis chapter 15. 
Yahweh makes Abraham fall into a deep sleep. And then in that sleep, Abraham sees a vision of God. And he sees this vision of the image of a smoking fire pot that's walking through the animals. But the fire pot is walking all by himself. By himself. That's significant. Well, what's all that about? Well, this is a really powerful moment. It's Yahweh, the creator God's way of saying that even if Abraham and his children don't keep their end of the bargain, then God is still going to keep his promise no matter what the cost. And if blood has to be spilled when, well, it won't come from Abraham. It will come from Yahweh himself. He's willing to die. He's willing to become like these animals to keep his promise that he'd made previously to bring the world back to life. Now, I wonder, is your mind already jumping ahead to the story of Jesus? Well, it should be. You see, the rest of the Old Testament, really the entire Bible, in fact, is about Yahweh faithfully keeping his covenant with Abraham's family, way back to Genesis chapter 12. Jesus is Yahweh in flesh and blood, God with skin on, as we sometimes say. Jesus came to do what Abraham and then Israel, God's chosen people, were supposed to do but could never do. He came to bless the world. Why? All because thousands of years ago, Yahweh made a promise. Why? Because when Israel failed, God was faithful. Why? Because even before that, when Adam failed, Yahweh was faithful. And here's the amazing truth. Even when you and I fail, God is still faithful to bless, to heal and to save. Jesus takes all of our failure. He takes millennia of broken promises and he drags it all the way to the cross and he absorbs all that failure in his death and then breaking its hold over humanity through his resurrection by him coming back to life. And that's why when you read the scriptures, particularly the New Testament, the New Testament authors are always quoting to and from and cross-referencing the Old Testament. Because without the story of the Old Testament and all the promises that are there, there's no story to be told in the New Testament. For the New Testament writers, the gospel started back in Genesis chapter 12 or before and not in Matthew chapter 1. Yahweh made a promise and Yahweh was faithful even to the point of death. And of course, we know that he's still not done He's going to keep all the rest of his promises and one day Jesus will return and he'll see to it that every single promise is fulfilled. It's all because of Yahweh's love and his faithfulness that we can look, for, we can look forward to a world that's going to be set free eternally from the destruction of death. And all of this is more than wishful thinking. It's a hope. It's a sure and certain hope that's founded on the promise and consistent with the very character of God that we've been looking at over recent weeks. And all of this is possible because Yahweh, by definition, is abounding in love and in faithfulness. Abraham's story is my story and it's your story. Israel's story is my story and it's your story. We failed over and over and over again, but God has been faithful. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, the Apostle Paul puts it this way. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot, he cannot disown himself. 
And you know, Paul is absolutely right to see that Yahweh's faithfulness is intrinsic to his name, even his nature. He could no sooner be unfaithful than he could cheat or he could steal. But let's be honest, there are times, aren't there, when it doesn't feel that way. When it feels like God has been anything but faithful to us. My dad died when I was 10. How can God be faithful? I've just gone through a nasty divorce. I've been left with nothing. Well, how is God faithful? I've just been diagnosed with a life-limiting illness. How is God faithful? And it's in these times we need to remember the covenant that was made with Abraham. What did God promise? Well, he didn't promise an easy life. He didn't ever promise health and wealth, even if that's what those wealth and prosperity gospel teachers tell us. But he promised that he would bless the world through his people, by which he didn't mean that you and I would never experience difficulty or even experience suffering. A lot of people misinterpret God's faithfulness to mean some kind of promise to give us life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. But if we subscribe to that interpretation of these uh, phrases, then we're really in trouble because it can only mean that God has somehow at some point been unfaithful to us. And that's a gross misreading of God's promise to Abraham because God never said that. In fact, do you recall, Jesus made exactly the opposite promise. John 16, verse 33, I've told you these things so that you may have peace. And then Jesus says, isn't it this? In this world, you will have trouble. You will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. You will have trouble, but don't worry because I've overcome the world and in eternity, everything will be fine. You see, it's not that God doesn't want you to live a rich and a satisfying life. In a sense, he does. But like any good father, our God is a God who takes the long view. Our God is a God who's willing to discipline his kids in order that they'll grow and they'll mature into their fullest potential. Do you know, God is more concerned with your long-term character than he is with your short-term happiness. Nowadays, God too quickly becomes a scapegoat for the immature or the confused. The Bible story reminds us that life is incredibly complex. The story of Scripture reminds us that God is busy sorting through the mess of our lives, giving us ample space to exercise free will and to make our own decisions without him controlling us. But he always graciously manages to draw good even out of evil even out of those things which we would call sin. Romans 8, 28, the Apostle Paul again, in all things, in all things, both the good and the bad, God works for the good of those who love him, in all things. Now, if this all sounds less than hopeful to you, you need to know that it's not. This means that even when really lousy stuff happens to us, even when, like Abraham back in the day, finds himself up against the wall and even against the will of God, even then, God is far more powerful than any evil force that we face or any mistake that we might make. So our hope isn't that nothing bad will ever happen to us. Our hope isn't that everything that does happen to us is somehow the will of God. Our hope is not that no matter what happens to us, um, that, that this is all going to be disaster and gloom forevermore, that God has been unfaithful. 
our hope actually is that no matter what happens to us, Jesus is back from the dead. Jesus is defeated death and sin, and therefore anything is possible. God is bigger than evil. God is stronger than death. God is both Hesed and Emmet together. God's love is his faithfulness. God's faithfulness is his love. And as I finish, I simply want to flip things on their head and ask this question. Well, if that's what God is like, as Yahweh's people, what are we to be like? Are we faithful? Am I? Are you? In our 21st century Western society, faithfulness has become something of an alien and a strange concept. Faithfulness has become a bit like a disco. It used to be cool, and a few people still do it, but for the most thing, it's really a, a, a thing of the past. Well, here's the problem with that. The best things in life are often the result of faithfulness, usually near years, if not decades, of faithfulness. Faithfulness is long obedience in the same direction in an age of instant gratification. Isn't that a great quote? Faithfulness is long obedience in the same direction in an age of instant gratification. Maybe we'd do well to think differently about the way we live our lives. And I think that's a challenge for us as followers of Christ. Maybe we'd be better to think less microwave and more slow cooker. Maybe we'd be better to think marinade not packet seasoning. Maybe we should take fewer shortcuts and instead go on longer walks. Not moments, but seasons. Perhaps old-fashioned letters rather than instant messaging. The question I want to leave you with is this. Where is it that God is calling you to be faithful? Where is it God is calling you to be faithful? Whatever the answer is, the odds are it will be hard work and there's a high chance it will be painfully slow and it might even be frustrating at times. The best things in life often are, but hear this, it will be worth it. I want to encourage you this evening, don't give up, but be faithful like the God we worship is faithful.